the pandemic wasn't going anywhere. I didn't really think we would still be at this stage. The first chance of getting out of the city, city that I was stuck in anyway, 20 minutes. Shedding your skin is simple enough. Black people weren't allowed to go to certain spaces. I guess people are just missing out. Very quiet here. We're in complete darkness. It's beautiful. This is you and the waves crashing, stealing, honeysuckle nectar. Floating in the beautiful ice. And your hand in mine feels like sunshine. Hello, this is Queer Out Here, an audio zine that explores the outdoors from queer perspectives. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alice. Welcome to Issue 6. Our optional theme for submissions this issue was change. And we also changed things up a bit in the way we sourced pieces. Last issue, we said we wanted to feature more pieces by black people, indigenous people and other people of colour. We did this by having a BIPOC-only submission window, by asking for suggestions for previously published work and by looking ourselves for pieces to feature. Thanks to everyone who helped us get our call for submission to new people, and who recommended other work to listen to. Even if we haven't included your suggestions this time, we enjoyed listening to everything, and we hope to include more in the future. We've also wanted to feature more folks with scientific backgrounds for a while, and we're pleased to have a couple of pieces here that explore different sciencey ways in which queer folk can and do relate to the outdoors. Of course, we still love to hear arty, personal, poetic, physical and sensual pieces, and we have plenty of those in store for you too. So a big thank you to all our contributors. Remember to check out the show notes for this issue, where you'll find out more about them, including links to social media and websites, and more interesting background info about their pieces. Thanks also to Jay Rosenbaum, our cover artist for issue 6. Jay Rosenbaum is a Melbourne AI artist and researcher, working with 3D modelling, artificial intelligence and extended reality technologies. Their work explores post-human and post-gender concepts using classical art combined with new media techniques and programming. The cover art is a collaborative piece drawn with a landscape-producing AI, Weaving in the self-portrait sketch with what the AI understand of landscape elements, the facial elements become tree-like, part of the sky, a reflection in the water. And before we launch into things, a bit of housekeeping. The pieces in Queer Out Here talk about many things related to being queer and the outdoors. There are non-graphic mentions of racism and racist violence in this issue, along with discussions of depression, anxiety and mental health struggles. There's also some swearing and some wind distortion. If you have specific anxieties or triggers, you may wish to ask a trusted friend to listen through and give you feedback. You can also check the transcript for particular words or phrases. Find it linked in the show notes on our website, queerouthere.com. And that's about it in terms of an introduction. Now it's time to take your ears adventuring. Let's Let's get get queer queer out here. here. Hi, I'm Lily. And I'm Abby. And we're Gears for Queers, a cycle touring queer couple from Fife. We're sitting on Dalgetty Bay Beach, looking out over the Fourth Rail Bridge. And we can by the queer like smell that you're listening to Queer Out Here. 
I did not even hear. I did not even hear what you're hearing right now. I was so focused. Left, right, left, right. Do I look like a fool? Why am I splashing so much water onto myself? They're all going to know. This is the first time I'm doing this. I can't even remember when was the last time I was on the river. And now, the first chance of getting out of the city, city that I was stuck in for the last nine months. Even if it's only for half a day. I just took the first just train. Took the first and train. Enjoyed. Quiet. Too quiet, if anything. Tedious. Um, somewhat um, boring. Somewhat just taste some normalcy to maybe make some new unexpected memories. To have fewer regrets in a few months. All of this will feel like ten years ago. Is it her? Did she actually reply to my message already? That wouldn't be like her, would it? She's too cool, too busy, too blase, too, too anti-technology, too not really interested, but still interested in hurting you over perceived insults. Too, you're too much, but not enough. Too distracted, but still present. Too present, despite being mostly absent. Too bad for you. Never been actually good, but registered as great due to unbelievably low standards. You have no trouble setting for people who. So much for staying present. Thanks to Barak Neil Boyer for opening this issue. Barak Neil tells us that the kayaking field recordings were taken on a day trip out of Berlin in September 2020, in the short window between two lockdowns. Her internal monologue is so relatable to me, showing how difficult it can be, even when surrounded by nature and doing something physically exerting, to quieten the stresses and anxieties of our own minds, lives and relationships. The interplays between external, outside, and internal, inside, as well as those between anticipation and reality, between what we want to do and what we feel able or allowed to do, between history and present, between our physical, mental, and emotional states, these are tensions that carry through this issue. Many of the pieces you'll hear in the next hour or so describe ways of moving towards being present in the outdoors. Next, we have pieces from Moxie and Mags, who both talk about how they've been able to get outside over the last year. First up, Moxie talks about his experience of surf fishing. He acknowledges the Coast Salish, including Duwamish people. Then, Mags takes us litter picking during her local walk in Northumberland. Hi everyone, my name is Moxie, and I want to thank Queer Out Here for inviting me on the show. I'm really happy to be here. And I just wanted to kind of talk about how I got into surf fishing and how I think that kind of ties into um, the theme of change that this issue has going on. At first, I got into surf fishing as a way to break out of some of the bad habits that had started forming during quarantine. Normally, I would be working, working out, or doing some traveling in my van, but like many people, I was laid off and I found myself with a lot of uh, free time on my hands. 
At first, I really enjoyed this. I was like, okay, you know, I've been working a long time. Now I can, you know, maybe focus on some other projects that I've been struggling to get to because I have been working so much. So I finished up my personal training certificate, and I was like, okay, I'm going to work on some music, started writing some music. But eventually, you know, I realized that the pandemic wasn't going anywhere those both of the interest, industries, fitness industry, music industry, weren't really going anywhere. And I just started just to feel like a failure in general because it just seemed like everything that I wanted to do, uh, life was there to like knock it out of my hands. So I started just staying up till 4 a.m., doomsday scrolling, not doing anything helpful for my mental health. And I started to become more depressed and anxious about the world. If the virus wasn't going to take get me, then some sort of violence would. At the time around Seattle, a lot of the summer protests, the police were becoming more violent. A lot of Trump people were coming out of the woodwork and it just, like, you know, I just generally felt unsafe. And so a big part of me just wanted to stay inside, you know, find a safe place and just stay in that safe place. I did not want to leave, but, I just started to really like miss the world and started, you know, again, like, you know, not quite understanding like, you know, why I couldn't go out and feel safe to go camping or just go out in the world like other people seem to do. So I just started going on YouTube and I started watching um, this guy on there who was like traveling around in his truck in the Pacific Northwest. He, I think he was originally from Minnesota. Minnesota. And he just came to one of our beaches and just started surf fishing. And I was like, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. I love the beach. I love water. I love the waves. And I've gone fishing in the past, but never on the beach. And it just looks like a really great time. He, you know, he looked like he either got out there a little bit later or earlier in the morning. And it just looked, you know, to be quiet. It looked like he had the space to himself. And it just seemed like something I really, really wanted to look into. So what I started doing was naturally, instead of doomsday scrolling, I decided to put that scrolling to another good use or a better use, I should say, and started learning everything I could about surf fishing and, you know, the mechanics of it and what the goal was, what bait to use, the, the right gear and tackle, the licenses, the rules, all that stuff. And after, you know, spending, I would say, you know, I, I didn't spend too much time on this. I spent maybe like just a week, you know, scrolling and kind of researching things. And after about a week, I was like, you know what, I, you know, I think I want to use this surf fishing as an opportunity to try and go outside and not be so like just afraid of the world and its inhabitants and, you know, try and feel more normal and like a part of society because I just didn't want to become the person who didn't leave their house ever. And I think that's kind of like the, the path I was going on. And I wanted to change that for myself. So prior to going on this Oregon trip, I had just started regular fishing around Lake Washington and that had been going well. So when I had saw the video on YouTube about this guy who was surf fishing, I was like, okay, I definitely want to try that. So we got down to the Oregon coast. The whole trip ended up being 800 miles and we had so much fun. It was my first time really getting to see a lot of the different beaches in Oregon. I think my favorite thing about 
surf fishing in general is just the rush of being in the water, feeling that struggle up against the waves, but holding your own. And the while this is happening, you know, you have seagulls above you, you're pretty much alone, you just have the solitude, it's you and the waves crashing, and it's, just, it's really hard to describe, but if I highly suggest experiencing it. It was a great experience, it was exhilarating, I had a lot of adrenaline afterwards, I just loved walking on the sandbanks, and it, the whole trip, like just that whole experience really helped restore faith and trust in myself, and it has empowered me to keep going out and finding different adventures and seeking new challenges and experiences. It, it's, at the end of the day, relying, trusting your gut is really important. And the, the pandemic has really uh, challenged that for me, I think. And I, I think I've, I lost my way for a, a little while trying to figure out what to do, how to do it, who I was, and how I could be you know, a better person and be different and not keep making those same mistakes. So this trip was, you know, the first of uh, many, and I hope to maybe one day go over those other trips. But thank you again to the queer out here for inviting me on the show, and I hope to hear from you all soon. Thanks. So the last 12 months has certainly brought a huge amount of change in the lives of all of us with the COVID pandemic. I didn't really think we would still be at this stage 12 months later, um, but we are. And during that time, yes, a lot of things have happened that I thought we'd never see. I've attended a queer online wedding that took place in the United States, and that, of course, we couldn't travel to attend in person. Uh, actually, online funerals, which is um, incredibly sad and feels very impersonal. Um, not being able to celebrate the lives of people who have, we've lost. I moved house early on in the pandemic, so I've been in my new place just under a year now, so that was quite a big change. Um, we've been restricted. I thought I'd be able to spend time off exploring beautiful Northumberland, beaches, uh, National Trust properties, etc. But unfortunately, with the restrictions in place, we haven't really been able to travel as far and as wide as we'd like to. So I've made very good use of the permitted exercise time that we've been allowed. And I've discovered quite a lot of quite nice little local pathways that I can uh, walk along daytime and in the evening after work. I've probably found that since the start of this year, the effects of the lockdown did start to, to impact me more than they had previously. At the turn of the year, we, possibly many of us thought that things would improve more rapidly and we'd be able to return to some kind of normal. That hasn't happened. Not yet, anyway. 
so I'll continue my local walks but one of the things I have been doing while I've been out is litter picking so people who litter are probably the bane of my life um, drives me insane especially when you find litter and just a few meters away you'll find a rubbish bin um, so that has been my own little personal mission so I have a litter picker usually go out with a couple of bags stuffed into my pockets um, just so I can do my little bit for the environment um, so today I'm out the end of February it's actually quite a nice spring-like day we had snow just up to a couple of weeks ago um, so it's uh, it's quite a pleasant day quite a pleasant um, temperature there's a few people out and about so I thought I'd record this before I get my bag out and my picker out and I do my bit for the day um, Getting out and about in the, the fresh air has been really important for my uh, my mental well-being, um, especially more recently as well. It's one or two people out here um, walking their dogs. I can hear the birds. Uh, there's a few flowers popping up, a few trees budding. So really quite pleasant. I think uh, the fact it's going into spring will make the end of this lockdown a little bit more bearable. So this is Mags reporting for Queer Out Here. So back from my walk, uh, one thing that I noticed that has changed is the sort of litter that we're finding in these pandemic days. So three bags of litter collected, the usual stuff of cans, uh, two empty vodka bottles, someone's obviously been partying outside during lockdown. Um, but the amount of PPE is quite worrying, so face masks, discarded, and gloves too. Um, yeah, plenty of bins around as well, so just wish people would put their litter in the appropriate place. This is Travis Bearbait at the summit of Mount Pleasant, Western Maine, USA. And you're listening to Queer Out There. The next piece is an excerpt from the podcast Breaking Green Ceilings, in which Sapna Mulki interviews Isaiah Hernandez about making spaces for queer people of color in the environmental movement. When we started work on this issue, we wanted to collect stories from a wider range of voices than we'd featured previously. We suspected that we were missing important aspects of queer outdoor experiences in earlier issues of Queer Out Here, and the following discussion shows us that we were. Isaiah's perspective on the outdoors is a contrast to a lot of what we've heard in previous issues. He is coming from a place where a lot of the privileges that I certainly took for granted don't exist. Be sure to check the show notes for the full version of this interview and other interviews with interesting folks on Breaking Green Ceilings. Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Moki. 
In this conversation, I speak with Isaias Hernandez. I really respect Isaias' work around educating the general public on the jargon, concepts, and ideologies in environmentalism. Another critical discussion we have is around how his identity of being a queer person of color and vegan influences how and what he communicates about environmental issues. Yeah, so my name is Isaiah Hernandez. I grew up in a city called San Fernando Valley, located in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a community that was very low income, that was predominantly black and brown families living in that community area. And for me, you know, I never had access to clean water. My parents always used bottled water. And essentially for me too, like I help recycle throughout the weekends in order to like gain some economic value through that with my parents. And whenever I had time to access green spaces, which were predominantly parks, it was always having to go to the next city or somewhere that is more affluent up there, upper in the city for me. And You know, during the weekends when I would play in the parks with my brother and sister, of course, I was surrounded by a lot of fresh air, so much greenery and so much, you know, carefreeness and like free flowing energy. And whenever I would come back home, it often felt sometimes difficult to be able to really access those spaces, especially because there wasn't really a lot of green spaces near where I lived. For me, I really started getting involved more in the environment is learning just about how much earth gives to us. Because I know growing up, you know, my parents always taught me how much earth gives you and how much you're supposed to reuse items and be resourceful about it. So I think having that really background in order to really understand and also appreciate what Earth has like given to my family really helped me shape my environmental narrative. As I got older, I realized, you know, myself being a queer person of color, one is that in a lot of environmental spaces, there weren't a lot of people who really looked like me. Predominantly, a lot of them were white folks or white students. And, you know, a lot of them had those experiences of like traveling, hiking, and going to all these like national monument parks and something that I didn't really have access to or didn't really understand how my experiences were a bit different. And I think for me, I'm already understanding that one, there's a barrier of my own identity of how I'm able to really talk about nature being queer and flowing and also myself being in these spaces. The second barrier was also being a person of color and really understanding my own environmental narrative and how it actually matters in this environmental movement. Because what we've seen in media is usually generally a lot of white environmentalists being showcased as celebrities or stars or heroes for the environment. But a lot of the recognition that people of color, Black, Indigenous people of color go through doing groundwork and EJ work in communities are not really often highlighted by the media. They're not seen as like heroes or equals. These are people who are actually just trying to survive in their communities, demanding for a better equity and justice for their own communities. So I think for me, that was really something that shaped me as I've continued on my career throughout college and after college. What were your interactions with other environmental students? I think at first when I barely entered Berkeley as an undergrad and I'm learning a lot of these topics, it was a bit difficult for me to really interconnect each theme and topic and issue that was happening throughout the world, especially because the language that is used in academia can sometimes be very inaccessible and very as someone who comes from a community that has experienced environmental injustices. 
I didn't really know what the term environmental racism meant, you know? Also, too, prior to my education in high school, it was a very low-income public high school that didn't really build me, give me the tools to really have a strong Mm -hmm. foundation in academics, such as like the science and biological fields. When in college, when I started talking about these topics and seeing a lot of my white student colleagues talk about their own environmental narratives, it never looked like me. A lot of their appreciation for the earth you know, revolved around traveling and just quote unquote discovering yourself through all these different countries that are obviously not their native culture countries. And I think for myself, it made me wonder one, how is the environment being connected as an undergrad, myself studying environmental science, but two, are these experiences that one should be living or is it that, you know, society has reinforced this idea and perpetuates the fact that if you're able to travel, you're doing veganism, zero waste or other things like that really makes you accomplished. But for me, not really having a mentor there in undergrad during that time, I realized that my narrative is also as valid, but also knowing that I also have a very unique perspective to be able to talk about my culture which is a lot of the things that I felt that a lot of my white colleague students felt is that they never really had connections to their own, what you would say, like culture or identity. And I think me being Mexican-American, having a lot of, you know, my parents and grandparents being Mexican farmers back in Mexico before they immigrated here, it really made me realize that we are also environmentalists. It may not be seen or labeled the same because of what social media or like what conversations go through, but it is something that is also valid. And I think that it was about really challenging myself to unlearn a lot of those perpetuated values that academia really presents to its undergrad students. Yeah, that's so true. It completely resonates with me. So what you said about the cultural identity and the environmental values and how those are interconnected. And you don't necessarily think of somebody as an environmentalist unless like they went to school for that degree. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to push for, I guess, is that environmentalism or an environmentalist is not a dirty word. And it's something Mm -hmm. that we all are in our own ways. And you don't have to go to school to appreciate nature and protect it. Thank you for sharing that very critical point. Correct me if I'm wrong here. A big part of sort of like your message and your identity is sort of like played a role in your cause. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about how that is? Being queer, being able to really understand my own sexuality growing up. It is a self-discovery process, of course, but I am also very blessed to have been able to really discover myself at an earlier age. Because I know some people really struggle with that. And I think for me, like already entering college, being queer, it allowed me to really engage in a lot of communities that are happening in the queer community. And there's a lot of queer environmentalists out there, but no one really talks about them. And I think being able to really disrupt that heteronormative environmental industry of what is usually presented and being able to present queer environmental terms, it not only provides a space for queer Black digital people of color, but also it acknowledges their existence and to really recognize that a lot of queer Black digital people of color have been doing environmental work for ages. Mm-hmm. And like these people's work are valid. And I think that 
a lot of time too living in a cis heteronormative society, it really only enforces and perpetuates what is seen as like quote unquote natural or normal in nature as like straight heteronormative when it's not. It's, you know, free flowing. It's something that doesn't judge by who you are. And I think that being able to present that framework through a queer lens has a really given the opportunity for a lot of queer youth to really explore that and actually engage in themselves to learn more about the environment because a lot of times sometimes queer people are like what does, what does me being queer have to do with the environment i'm like there's so much you know yeah tell us what does it mean to actually like what does it have to do with the environment and being queer to me like what it means to be like queer and in the environment it means to be able to really showcase yourself in your unapologetic way really focusing on like issues that really revolve around queer communities right so i talked about how queer black indigenous people of color are the ones who are usually in the frontline communities right like these people queer youth queer folks are usually you know kicked out of their homes and left nowhere to go and a lot of the times they're very vulnerable to a lot of heat waves floods lightning because they don't really have access or the resources to go to a Mm -hmm. shelter and to me, you know, these are human. These are people that are dying because of these, a lot of the homophobia has happened. So I think for me, what it really means to me is providing that safe space for queer, Black, Indigenous people of color to be able to ask a lot of questions, but also to empower them, to give them the tools in order to seek help if they need it. It's difficult when you're growing up because there's so many things that society's out you know, has constructed against queer trans people of color. And I think at the end of the day, it's about providing that safe space for them because a lot of times we're pushed out. And I don't want to say myself being pushed out because I have my own privilege being a tall, like skin Mexican, but more about folks, the ones who are the most vulnerable, which are queer trans, black, indigenous women of color who are literally being, you know, murdered. And that's something that like is not really talked about. Mm-hmm. No, and thank you for actually describing that because I don't think a lot of people make the connection between like the LGBTQ plus community and environmental issues. So thank you for sharing that with us. Hi, this is Dan. Uh, We're out waymarking the Sussex Diamond Way on a lovely sunny spring morning. And you are listening to Queer Out Here. Right from the start of our editing process, we felt that these next three pieces worked well as a set. Together, they expand our understanding of engagement with place with connections to animals, landscape, wind, water, culture and mythology, through field recording, spoken reflection and musical composition. We're going to play the three pieces without interruption, so we'll introduce them in advance and then we'll refresh your memory at the end. We start with a series of layered and looped recordings from Emily, who has included audio from almost every field recording she's made in the last three years. Overall, she writes, the piece reflects the accumulation of these moments that form my impressions of, and personal connections to, the wild creatures we share these spaces with. Emily's recordings were made on the unceded land of Wurundjeri, Berenji Gudjan, Guntijmirin, Eastern Ma, Tongarong, Wadawurrung, Jarjawurrung, Yodda Yodda, and Tasmanian First Nations people. 
We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge all Indigenous and First Nations people listening. Sky Stewart's piece follows on from Emily's. Sky is a proud, queer, non-binary Wargaya and Wumba Wumba woman. They were born on country and have been connected to their cultures through their mom, nan, cousins and the land. In this piece, Sky talks about being called to move back to the Mali after 20 years of living in the city and about their connection to this place, its history and its present. After Sky's piece, you will hear Gelt a number of ways from trans composer and musician Rufus Isabel Elliott. The recording is of a performance by the Nevis Ensemble on the St Kilda Archipelago, remote islands to the west of the Outer Hebrides. The piece evokes wild landscapes rich with mythological connections. Rufus says that it wrote Gelt for special places, places which, when I lived in them, brought with them an ephemeral life of moving on. It calls out to both the lived intimacy of the place and its abstract brutality, of being rooted and of being astray. Mm-hmm. I can like, walk down in the 
I remember this last time we were like to go around, then we go all the way down and go around this floor. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> if I am wrong, I think I would definitely be just for Jonathan. It's all right. It's just for Jonathan. My name is Sky. I'm a Wamba Wamba and Wagaya woman of Mallee, Victoria. And I want to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. My heart are always going to be on these lands. I was born and raised on country. I was born in a little tiny town called Manangatang and was raised by my mum and my nan and bunch of other family members. We um I grew up with a lot of culture and connection to land that I didn't really quite understand until I don't know, I guess I was older and realised that other people didn't have that. Um I moved to the city when I was sixteen and still found my way because I'm curious and adventurous and really wanted to explore the world around me 
or wherever I was, whatever that looked like. It's beautiful and I love it, but there's something about coming home oh, that grounds me and connects me back to who I am, to the old ways, I guess. I've just moved back home. I'm sitting outside right now on my porch. Um, it's beautiful. People often say, oh, travel blogs, actually, is where I read it, was that the Mallee is the least um, visited place because it isn't as pretty um, as coastal mountainous areas and I don't know I guess people are just missing out because it's beautiful here it's really flat I don't know if you can hear the wind it's nice it's hot today it was 38 Yeah, the land here is it's flat, oh, which means that we've got dry heat. Um, but because it's flat, our sky is massive, and I've never seen a, a sky quite like it. And at the night time, it's so clear because we don't have that much light pollution, and there's so many stars. My family's mob from around here are actually um, from an area called Lake Tyrrell, which uh, is a salt lake, and Tyrrell means star, a uh, sky. I mean, and what happens is because of the salt lake and the flatness of the land, the sky reflects on the lake, and so sometimes when you go out there on a clear night and you're looking at the lake you don't know if you're looking at the sky or if you're looking at the lake which has got the sky's reflection on it it's really quite amazing and I feel I don't know it's a bit cool that I think my my ancestors are one of the you know first astronomers and that our this is our land here and the lake's 120,000 years old I could obviously keep talking for about lots of different things but um I think I'll stop it there I think my main thing to share about you know being queer out here is that out here is my home and I'll always keep that curiosity of what's around me, what's come before me, what will everything look like after me and I'm glad that I get to share that story with you all and with my kids.
Those are such immersive pieces. I love how they represent their environment and transport the listener to the places they were recorded in and reflected on in beautiful and powerful ways. First up was Emily's field recording, then Sky's reflections on their connection to country, and finally Rufus Isabel Elliot's Gelt, A Number of Ways. I'm at the Blessington Basin in Dublin, having a coffee in the morning, and it's very quiet here. I love coming and just watching and listening to all the birds. It's this little secluded park. There's just a heron that's flying around, and the seagulls are not happy about it. (laughs) And you're listening to Queer Out Here. Our next piece is something a bit different. Itumalung is a plant biologist and a fantastic storyteller. Here, he talks about cycads, soil and survival, and the journey his botanical studies have taken him on, from South Africa to Korea to Canada and back. This Black Botanist Week presentation was part of an event organised by Broad Science in partnership with Confabulation. Thanks to everyone involved for allowing us to use it. It is a slightly edited cut of Utumalang's talk, but I'm sure once you've heard this, you will want to listen to the full version. It's linked in our show notes. So the story of my birth is not remarkable um, at all, really. I just sort of jumped out. Um, (laughs) But I was born during a state of emergency, actually, in my country. So as you can tell from my wonderful accent, I'm from South Africa. And I was born in Johannesburg back during apartheid. Don't worry, this story is not about apartheid. But uh, one of the things that happened during apartheid was that black people weren't allowed to go to certain spaces. 
So like the zoo, the park, the beach, the mall, everywhere, really. Um, so when I was young, I remember the earliest memory I have of plant bodies was my fifth birthday. And a party just ended, the country was a buzz, Mandela was out, I had no idea who he was, but he was out. I was like, good for him, you know, look at him go. So <laughs> he was out and uh, for my birthday, my family took me to the Johannesburg Botanical Gardens. Anyway, so we, at the Johannesburg Botanical Gardens, I'm five years old, I was probably this high back then, you know, as kids are young. I remember getting off the car and we were standing by the main entrance of the Johannesburg Botanical Gardens. Just by the ticket kiosk, there is this huge um, garden of cycads, right? And I was, cycads are these extraordinary plants. They look so remarkable to me because back then I was five and I remember standing face to face with one of the leaves of the cycad plant. So the leaves look, imagine a palm tree, right? but it's really, really short. So it sort of looks like a fern met up at a bar with a palm tree and you know the cycad came out. So I was standing right next to it and this was the first time I had seen anything other than lawn grass for the, in my life. So I was like, oh my God, there's so much color. There's so many different hues of green, so many different kinds of plants. I was fascinated. I remember vividly standing there and sort of yanking in my mother's dress. I was like, let's not go inside. Let's just stay here with the plants. And ever since then, I mean, I'm many years old now, but ever since then, I spent my birthday at the Botanical Garden every year. Uh, okay, that's not the story. <laughs> I spent my birthday at the Botanical Gardens, and I've been to many. Um, so fast forward to I started university when I was younger. In South Africa, we start when you're 16, 17. And like most teenagers, I was really confused. You know, I had no idea what I wanted. I knew I wanted to make money and be rich, right? <laughs> like most people, like most people, I, I, uh, I started off with medicine, hated it. Uh, a week later, so I sort of fumbled about from anthropology to zoology to archaeology, all of it. I did it. So my second year rolls up, and in my program, you have to choose a stream or a major so you can focus, right? So I had no idea what I wanted to do, and I randomly signed up for this botany course. I was like, yeah, plants, right? Um, so I moved from Johannesburg to Cape Town. So I'm at the University of Cape Town. I'm 17, and I'm sort of living the life, you know, my best life. And <laughs> I'm living my best life, and I wanted to get a degree that would get me a job, but also that didn't really have any work, you know? Yeah, like didn't have any work. So I'm like, this course had a three-week field, uh, field course, field component to it. So I wouldn't be on campus. You'd go in the field, look at plants, I guess, and sort of write a report, and then you get, you get an A. And I'm like, this is my course. So I sign up, and then we had to leave. I think the second day of the semester started. We get in the combi, uh, like a small minivan, taxi, bus thing, right? Um, so like, this is a small class, because back then, um, like botany and zoology, a lot of black people weren't doing these courses because we didn't know about them, right? It was, so I was the only black guy in the class, and I'm thinking, like, okay, it's been two hours. Where are we going? <laughs> Where's the Wi-Fi? Where's the signal? Um, 
So we, we drive, we drive, we drive, we drive it up. We ended up in, it was just the beginning of summer. And as we were driving, the professor is telling us about these plants and how they work. And I'm like, okay, all right. I guess the plants, they, you know, they flower and then they, but so we drive, we drive, we drive, we get to this sort of this lookout point and he's like, oh, come on, come on, come on. So we come out and we're standing there and the first thing my eye saw, like right in my periphery, right there, was this huge cycad. It was the biggest I've ever seen in my life. So these plants can grow and they're forever, basically, right? So I was just in awe. And everything else sort of faded away. And um, so as I learned more about the Feinbos, which is where uh, Cape Town is, right? So the Feinbos is one of the smallest floristic kingdoms in the world. So that means like here in this sort of small strip, almost 200 kilometers, 200 square kilometers, we have these unique plants that are not found anywhere else in the world. My mind completely blew. I was like, what is going on here? I want to know everything. <laughs> Tell me all about these plants. So I sort of got excited about the course as you know, he was explaining to me, like, okay, these plants, they've been around for millions of years as well because South Africa, where it is located, there hasn't been a lot of, we don't have volcanoes, we don't have tsunamis. Like, it's pretty chilled, you know? <laughs> so the plants are pretty happy. So because, the, because it's so pretty chilled, the soils are really nutrient poor, right? Because it's been raining for years and years and years. So these plants had to find ways to adapt to this harsh environment seemingly. So um, the second day of the field trip, we were walking out and he tells us how these plants reproduce. And it turns out, so the Feinbos, all the plants in the Feinbos need fire to survive. Fire, right? <laughs> like, they need fire to survive. So I was shocked. I was like, okay, first of all, time out. Fire? <laughs> like, what do you mean? So I, I spent my undergraduate years learning a lot about how plants survive these inhospitable, seemingly inhospitable environments by adapting and incorporating these really harsh disturbances that we wouldn't even tolerate, like fire, right? <laughs> if the system doesn't have fire, the plants die. So I like this blew my mind, and so when I was when I, I I finished my courses, I stuck with botany. Thank goodness. So I stuck with botany, and it sort of got harder, you know. <laughs> I was like, ah, I have to draw the flowers now. Okay. So and then I finished my I finished my undergraduate, and I was still young, and I wanted to see the world and live. So I did, and as, as per tradition, I spent my, my birthdays at botanical gardens. So I went all over the world, I saw tons of botanical gardens, and I, when I left South Africa, I had some money. It turns out money runs out if you don't have a job, <laughs> right? <laughs> I had no idea. I was stuck in Korea, and I met this guy, my, then my master's advisor, he was like, hey, listen, do a master's. I was like, oh, okay free money and I get to do what I want. He's like, okay. So I was fortunate enough that I did my master's in South Africa. So I flew back home and I got to see my family. I hadn't seen them in 10 years. I was back in the Feinbos, but this time I was looking at how these soils that are so nutrient poor and they're so used to fire, how do they support these plants to survive? Where does the carbon come from? Where do the nutrients come from? So I focused a lot of my master's on understanding the soils. I finished, I finished my master's and I was, I was very confused about my life. So I uh, decided to do a PhD. Like the <laughs> <laughs> so I started my PhD looking at um, 
I wanted to challenge myself, push myself, push the envelope, right? This is a PhD. So I went into agriculture. I wasn't working in the Fane Boss, alas. But uh, I got to drive around Quebec and I, spent, I met a lot of farmers and I talked about, you know, a lot about soybean. So I'm your guy if you want soybean. <laughs> if your soybean plants are dying, call me. Um, so I started thinking, now I'm sort of left with three months until I wrap up my PhD. So it's been a, an incredibly lonely experience. I'm happy to be on stage <laughs> to see people. Um, so I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking about what I want to do with my life, with this new knowledge of how soils help plants survive, how microbes help plants survive. So I decided, well, those cycads, right? What's going on with them? So this year on my birthday, um, the Montreal Botanical Gardens, they had an exhibition. You really should go, it's a great experience. But they have this, uh, when you walk into the greenhouses, they had an exhibition of these cycads from South Africa, right? And I was like, oh my God, piece of home. They had, <laughs> they had these, these massive cycads. They must have been maybe 7,000, 8,000 years old. But they, they, you have to create the environment for these plants to survive, right? Because here, snow, right? So. <laughs> It, it, it's, it's a lot of money. So I was, I was thinking about how these plants back home survive. I was thinking about how these cycads survive back home, not, but really understanding the fundamentals behind it. Like, how exactly do they do it? Like, is it magic? What, <laughs> what is it? Is there like a spark? What's going on? So I'm fortunate enough, and I'm, I'm happy to announce today on stage, I got an offer to go back to South Africa and for my postdoctoral training to work on these cycads. So I'm really, yes, thank you, thank you. Um, so um, I'm going back home and I'll be working back in the Feinbos. I'll be working with, uh, with, with my cycads, with cycads again, but also incorporating what I've, what I've learned from my masters and my experiences here. And to sort of wrap up, I just wanted to share this story with you because I think it's, it's so extraordinary. So, so often we, we see these challenging um, disturbances that occur in our, occur in our lives and we, you know, we sort of get over it, tough it up. But plants are doing far more extraordinary things that we could ever imagine to just survive. Thank you. We're moving from botany to ecology and the science of insects and change for this next piece. In Thou Shall Not Compare Queer People to Insects, Connor reflects on his coming out to his parents and the similarities with insect molting, the inevitable change he feels happens when you start to become the truer version of yourself. His piece includes field recordings from his garden in Oxford, England, as well as sounds from the tropical rainforest of Southeast Asia. Some changes are small, some changes are big. Some are gradual, slow, some quick and sudden. Sometimes the change is instantaneous and yet sometimes there are distinct stages. Think of the metamorphosis of a butterfly. It starts life as a single egg laid on the surface of a leaf. This egg hatches into a small caterpillar whose sole purpose is to eat and eat. The caterpillar goes through numerous molts or sheds its outer layer, revealing a new, bigger exoskeleton. This is how it grows. It has to lose a part of itself to reveal the new underneath. 
Eventually, the caterpillar has gotten as big as it's going to get. In order to get to the next stage in life, it has to change everything. Shedding a skin is simple enough, but changing your entire form is another matter. The caterpillar must build itself a chamber, a chrysalis, to protect itself during the most vulnerable transition of its life. The caterpillar will go into a state of uncertainty, where its body is essentially dissolved into goo. It loses some parts of itself that were so valuable to it as it was growing up, but from this matter, new parts are formed. Wings, colours, new senses, new abilities. Does the caterpillar know what's on the other side of this transformation? This period of uncertainty, of darkness? And how does it know when it's time to change? My big change happened seven years ago, when I was 21. I had just finished my bachelor's degree in zoology and had managed to land a job as an ecologist in Singapore. As someone that has spent much of his life studying the insects in his garden in the UK, going to the tropical rainforest is life-changing. The diversity of insects is incredible, with moths and beetles the size of your hand. But on this trip, what I also came to realise and accept for the first time was that I was queer. There's a real privilege in being able to move far away from home. You're able to experiment with different ways of being you, without the risk of bumping into family and friends at the shops. But this separation also puts you into this dichotomy of lives. The one you tell your friends and family on the phone, and the one that you're actually living and experiencing and enjoying. But eventually, you reach the point where you've grown as much as you can, and you're hindered by this secrecy, and you need to come out to your friends and family. And that's terrifying. Some change is easier to deal with if it's gradual. As a queer person, we all fear those snap reactions from people when they don't have time to process who we are. And that's why I decided to come out to my parents in an email that I sent right before setting off for a hike for three days up a volcano. I was about to climb Gunung Rinjani on the island of Lombok, one of 17,000 islands in the Indonesian archipelago. It is the second highest peak in Indonesia, reaching over 3,700 metres and with a rating of 4.5 stars on Google reviews. To picture what it looks like, just imagine a huge volcano covered in dense tropical rainforest reaching well up above the clouds. In my mind, coming out to my parents in an email was a way of giving them time to process it before I saw their reaction. Not that I particularly thought that they'd react badly, but more because it can be a lot to take in. And I think most queer people assume the worst, because why wouldn't we? I didn't have any phone data, so after I'd sent the email at my hotel, there was no chance of contact until I was back at the same hotel three days later. So for the next few days, I woke up at sunrise, had breakfast, and set off for a day of hiking through the forest, till the evening where we'd make camp, cook dinner, and sleep. Now I don't know if you've ever spent three solid days hiking in the rain, but you spend most of it in your own head, so you have quite a lot of time to think about your poor life decisions, and how maybe sending an email to your parents and then climbing a volcano is a little bit... melodramatic. On the second day, we reached the peak, sat for a moment to catch our breath, taking the view of the crater, before beginning our descent. That night, sitting outside our tent, 
halfway back down the volcano, we're in complete darkness, listening to the sounds of the forest, the crickets, the katydids, and we feel a tremor. It was the only time that I'd felt an earth tremor, and halfway up an active volcano is not the time that you want to experience your first tremor. The ground rumbled, the trees around us were shaking, the leaves were falling down, we were all silent. And in that moment, which seemed to last for minutes but in reality was only a few seconds, the first thought that popped into my head was... Did I actually press send? For the caterpillar, we all know what comes next after the chrysalis. A butterfly emerges. Butterflies are symbols of hope, of freedom, of beauty. As a queer person, to compare our coming out stories to the emergence of a butterfly is pretty cliche, I will admit. I just threw up in my mouth thinking about it. But there are similarities. When I finally got back to my hotel and checked my emails, my parents were totally cool and I am so grateful for that. But we can never know what's on the other side of that transformation, that uncertainty. But we know that we can't grow anymore without giving up a part of ourselves. When we're younger, we collect all of these behaviours to allow us to navigate society, to pass. It's like we are playing a character of ourselves. And the longer this goes on, the harder it is to remember which parts of us are us, and which parts we created to protect us. And in order to truly accept ourselves, we need to reconfigure everything. We need to turn our entire being into goo, pick out the good parts, and throw away the bad. And for me, that is the true blessing of coming out. Hi, I'm Richard, and I just walked around Ardingly Reservoir and under Balkan Viaduct, which has been on my bucket list forever. Um, and you're listening to Queer Out Here. We're now moving into the last section, four pieces that mirror in miniature some of the journey of this issue as a whole, from the struggle to get outside, to balance the needs of our minds and bodies, to the joy that can be found in being present and engaged with the world around us. In her poem, How Are You?, Jade Muchkora recounts a situation familiar to many people who deal with depression and related issues around mental health. How hard it is to get out of bed or shower, let alone get dressed and go outside, even when we know how good it is for us, how good it feels once we're out there. Jade's poem is followed by an experimental piece I made with my friend Martha Casey. Martha found herself having to relearn how to walk, and the disjointed way the audio is cut mirrors her hesitating and halting forays outside, building up a picture of Martha's experience of her body and her neighbourhood. How Are You? by Jade Muchkora. I'm sorry, I forgot to ask you. You see, when you asked me, I was thinking of how to explain a despair so deep that it jams my bones, preventing me from going downstairs turning the bathroom into a distant summit, crippled by a decision to drink water, ashamed at how far I might plummet, wading through a swamp in search of words, to ask to be doused in affection, to explain why it'd be absurd to change clothes after day three or four, scared that once you know how deep I've sunk, loving me will become a chore. I'm drowning in traumas from my past, 
but I need our connection to last. So I gather my efforts to say, in a vaguely believable way, I'm fine. I'm fine. Give me space to climb out of this pit. I didn't know love could look like this. Like tears shed in a festering bed. Like colourful flowers and an order to shower, get dressed and drink. And although I think it's a ridiculous notion, I can traverse an ocean with you on my side. I obediently slide boots onto my feet and step out onto the street, where the chill cuts through my blanket of blue and your hand in mine feels like sunshine. Um, so, um, anyway. Um, 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 anyway, yes, you know, anyway. Something like that. Um, 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 good afternoon, you know, um, um anyway, stuff like that, uh, sort of, um, um, anyway, yes, you know, good afternoon, um, um, um anyway, find that something like that, trying um, to get outside. Anyway, my good afternoon. Um, pain is sort of anyway. going up to quite high levels again. Hello, Captain. Um, I've sort of made myself this anyway. promise. Hello, Professor. Try and get outside. Um, and I find anyway. the planting of my feet. Um, hello, Captain. Hello, anyway. Professor. Good afternoon, um, Magpie. Of, uh, anyway, I'm already getting out of um, breath. Um, um, anyway, uh, and my hands um, get incredibly cold. Uh, anyway, so kind of hello, Professor. Um, uh, good afternoon, anyway. Magpie of. Um, uh, Unspecified anyway, gender under normal circumstances, um, I guess. If you're choosing anyway, to be in a relationship, I um, hope your partner is anyway, doing well. But no judgment either um, way. Stuff like that. I sort of made myself this promise. One of them um, is the trans pride anyway, colours. Slightly out of alignment. And my hands get incredibly cold. Uh, sort of kind of trying to get outside. I'm already getting out of breath. Anyway, I sort of made myself this promise um, to walk every anyway, single day. Um, the planting of um, my feet. My anyway, not great. Quite anxious. Pain is um, sort of getting up to quite high levels again. Anyway, um, so I'm now passing um, the community. Compost anyway, bins. good afternoon, Magpie. Um, which the first walk that I anyway, did, quite anxious uh, after, um, you know, once anyway. I had to stick. Anyway, uh, um, um, uh, this was as far as I got, and I find that, and it took um, me. I'm already getting anyway, out of breath. twenty minutes. Um, the planting of my feet. Anyway, fifteen minutes. Yes, um, I'm going to try and get out. Anyway, hell of a long time. Yes, um, I'm going to try and get out. Anyway, under normal circumstances, uh, I guess. Um, the day that I got the keys, anyway. the, the lawn was absolutely covered um, in daffodils. It's kind of been really anyway. nice. On this estate, I don't um, think anyone actually officially has a anyway. garden. Quite anxious, but everybody um, has got the sort of grass in anyway. front of the building. Um, um, the kind of traditional pride flag. Anyway. And a lot of the um, people that live here anyway. have kind of just carved out a little garden um, space of one kind or another. Anyway. Some people have just put in a little flower bed, um, other people have put in kind of, anyway. you know, quite substantial um, growing area. Anyway. I think the council don't seem to um, mind under normal circumstances, because anyway. it's just one less bit of grass um, for them to mow, I guess. So as long as you anyway. don't, you're not putting up cars on bricks um, or anything, they seem kind of fine with anyway. it. The first walk that I did, um, the second time I came anyway. out, I made it as far as a bench that's um, just ahead of me now. Anyway, you know, once I had the stick, um, uh, that's uh, opposite anyway. a very beautiful view um, of a wheelie bin. Anyway. Uh, I sort of made myself um, this promise to anyway. walk every single day um, when I used to walk to work every anyway. day. This is close enough to um, home that I would, anyway. for example, if I'd forgotten my sunglasses, um, I'm already getting out of breath. Anyway. I'd just turn around and go back for them um, after. You know? anyway. But I'm already now far enough out of the house that it feels anyway. like quite a big, um, quite a big job, I guess, anyway. quite a big chore to go back for them. So, um, Anyway, um, um, which I was kind of like because anyway. I think um, um, one of them is the trans anyway. pride colours. Um, I'm just coming up to anyway the end of um, the estate. Um, anyway, good afternoon, my magpie um, of 
pain uh, anyway. is sort of getting up to quite high levels again. Um, the first walk that I did, anyway. the second time I came out, I made it as um, far as a bench. You know, once anyway, I stick. I'm just coming up to um, Hello Captain, anyway. the end of the estate where there is um, a tree. I'm anyway. already getting out of breath. That someone has um, decorated with, I don't think anyone anyway. officially has a garden. The kind um, of traditional pride flag. And anyway. I find that one of them is the trans um, pride colours. Anyways. Which I always kind of like because um, I think... Anyway. Um, Particularly when you live um, in a more, this is probably very anyway. stereotypical, but when you live in a more um, working class area, anyway. there's always a slight worry that um, the day that I got the keys, the, the anyway. lawn was absolutely covered in daffodils. Um, you know, the attitudes might be more anyway. old fashioned or whatever, but I know there are at, um, least, <laughs> at least a handful anyway. of other, other weirdos um, here, which is good anyway. to know. Um, good afternoon, under normal circumstances, I guess. Um, I'm starting to head home now. Anyway, my the kind of traditional pride flag. Um, pain is sort of getting anyway. up to quite high levels again. Under normal circumstances, um, I guess. Um, anyway, you know, once I have stick. I think what's interesting um, is that it's not where anyway. I would have expected it. I mean, the, um, the worst thing is at the moment, my anyway. hand where I'm leaning on my stick um, is starting to get a anyway. blister or callus. Um, I'm already getting out of anyway. breath. If I don't wear gloves, um, the callus is worse. Anyway, And my hands get incredibly cold. Um, but if I do wear gloves, anyway. I've got kind of woolly ones. Um, my hand slips around on anyway. the stick. Planting in my feet. Um, and a friend of mine, anyway, our friend of a friend um, recommended uh, leather sort of driving gloves. Um, um, problem is that even having um, had major spinal surgery, I'm really conscious of looking um, like a prick. Having emerged into the outdoors, the last two pieces celebrate time spent in nature and the pleasure we derive from it. We highly encourage you to put on a pair of earphones or headphones for the end of this issue. You are first going to hear Sounds of Ice Swimming by Corey. Based in the north of England, Corrie joined 27 other swimmers in a challenge to swim every day in January to raise money for the homeless charity Crisis. She says, With the coldest winter in years came the opportunity to break ice to swim. Swimming in the wild is always a multidimensional experience, but the ice added to the experience further with unique sounds, light, and sensations. Following on from Corrie, we are closing this issue with Desire Lines by Ariana Martinez. Their piece explores the slow build of desire and the unique, multi-layered sensory and sensual pleasure that only comes to our bodies when we are outdoors. Ariana adds, This poem reads as if it calls to a lover, because it does. Even if the recipient of that love is ambiguous, be it a landscape or a person or the experience of being bodies in a landscape. Good morning, everyone. So it's January daily dip day 26, so we're nearly at the end. Um, I have done the hard bit today of breaking the ice again. We smashed it yesterday, but it's frozen again overnight. So I thought I'd take you in so you can see what it's like being in the ice and the sound of it. So I've cleared the steps, I'm going in. So that tinkling, that is the ice you can hear. And this is us floating in the beautiful ice. There you go. Ice baby. 
I've just dug out this channel down to the tree. Um, it's a bit shallow at first. But you can see all the pretty things. I'm just going to shut up now and let you hear the noises. How much of wanting is weighing? Unturned stones knee deep in the river. Your eyes watching the current for signs of slowing. Exhaling into diminishing coals, moon dust white but glowing in cadence with your breath. Receding into forest brush, sharp and entangling. Sweat mixing with paper-cut blood. The smell of tree sap on my fingers. Copper on your tongue, stealing honeysuckle nectar. The kind of thickness of the air when you have more than one type of flower blooming. Tempting petals to be crushed between your teeth. 
spent blossoms scattered everywhere. A trace leading, handheld and snowblind, through a path you dug before. I just love both of these pieces. The sounds of the ice and water in Corrie's recordings make my mouth water, and Ariana's gorgeous piece really ends things on a high. The sensuality and desire in their engagement with nature, the mergings of bodies and landscapes in both pieces, feels really queer to me. I could listen to them over and over again. And I have. Anyway, this is where we're leaving you today, at the end of issue 6, fully immersed in nature. We hope you found something here that is comforting or surprising, something that sparked a connection to a network of queer nature lovers, thinkers and creators, or something that's opened you up to a different way of understanding the world. Thanks again to our contributors. For more information about them and their pieces, check out our website for bios, creator statements and links to their website and social media channels. Thanks also to the people who have recorded Sweepers, Abby and Lily from Gears for Queers, Travis, Dan, Gabriel, and Richard. We're always on the lookout for new sweepers. If you're out and about, get your phone out, press record, and make one for us. A reminder that you can find Jay Rosenbaum's excellent cover art in high resolution on our website, queerouthere.com. Thank you to everyone who shared our call for submissions or suggested people to check out. We really appreciate your help in expanding our network of contributors. We're looking forward to reaching out to more queer people, especially black, indigenous and other people of colour, in our next issue. Hopefully the way we've presented each voice, each producer in this issue has been appropriate and worthy of your trust, but if we've made a mistake, please get in touch to let us know so we can apologise and improve in future. And thanks, as always, to you, the listener. It's so good to have you here in this niche world of queer outdoors audio. If you've enjoyed this issue, please let us know on Twitter at Queer Out Here, Facebook, search for Queer Out Here, or by emailing us at queerouthere at gmail.com. You can also rate and review us on your podcast app if you like. Well, that's it from us. We'll leave you with some sounds of the snowy and snowmelty woods that I recorded near my home in East Sussex back in February. So until next time, remember to take your ears adventuring. And from me, Jonathan. And me, Alice. Goodbye. Goodbye.